This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Free State of Jones by Victoria Bynum. This is a fascinating story of an aspect of the Civil War, an uprising by a combination of Confederate deserters and slaves, that I had never heard about before, and that, frankly, is interesting enough and fascinating enough that you should probably learn about it from a book written by a scholar rather than a motion picture, regardless of how major it is. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 306, The Prisoners of Nanbu, part 1. There's a lot to find fascinating about the Tokugawa period. In many ways, it's one of the most formative eras in Japanese history. That's true for many areas, from the cultural to the political to the economic. Lord knows I've said the phrase, it all goes back to the Edo period enough times that I am fairly sure it will be on my tombstone at this point. However, in conversation about the legacies of the Edo period, one of the outliers is always foreign policy. The traditional narrative of Japanese history is that during the Edo period, Japan was a closed country, but during the 1850s, the country was forcibly opened by the West and the old Tokugawa foreign policy was cast aside as hopelessly outmoded. We've already spent some time unpacking the idea of the closed country. Tokugawa Japan was not closed in the sense that most of us would understand that term. The Dutch, of course, continued to trade with Japan via their heavily restricted enclave in Nagasaki, and substantial trade with the neighboring powers of Joseon Korea, the Ryukyuan Kingdom, and on an unofficial basis with China, continued as well. But that still leaves the question, how did the Tokugawa shoguns conceive of their foreign policy as such? What was the goal? How did the practice of keeping foreign influence at an arm's length facilitate that goal? To explore this question, we're going to take three episodes to take a close look at a specific story of Tokugawa foreign policy, one documented by Rainer Hesselink in his fantastic book, The Prisoners of Nanbu. Our story starts in 1642 in Batavia, in the Dutch East Indies, the modern city of Jakarta, now the capital of the modern country of Indonesia. However, in 1642, the city didn't just have a different name, it had a very different role. It was the hub from which the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, managed its influence in Asia and its land holdings in what would later become Indonesia. The governor general of the city and the colonial holdings of the Dutch was one Anthony Van Diemen, an ambitious colonialist who aimed to expand Dutch power in Asia. The expeditions he started planning in 1642, which would not get going until the following year, were a part of that expansionist policy. Each was to include two ships, 
One expedition, led by Abel Tasman, was to make its way east and explore the Southland rumored to exist to, well, the south of Indonesia, in hopes of finding new trade routes there. No trade routes were opened, but Tasman did discover a series of new islands, including one he named Van Diemen's Land for his patron, though the name derived from his own, Tasmania, is what stuck. The other expedition was to go north and explore the, quote, unknown coasts of Tartary, the kingdoms of Cathay, and the west coast of America, as well as the gold and silver islands, unquote. Tartary is essentially Central Asia, though fed through a filter of distortion by the writings of Marco Polo. Cathay is supposed to be China, though again, thanks to Marco Polo, there was a lack of clarity among many at the time as to what the difference between Cathay and China was, and whether they were in fact the same place. The Gold and Silver Islands were lands rumored to exist to the east of the coast of Cathay that had, well, a lot of gold and silver. The rumors of these fantastic lands of treasure, which were now thought to be even further east than the islands collectively known as Japan, dated back to the age of Spanish and Portuguese expansion in this region, but the Dutch, a century and a half later, were still chasing that dream. Two ships were tasked with this northern expedition, the Castricom and the Breskins. These two ships were placed under the command of Captain Martin Vries, with 110 crew members total for the expedition, more than twice the number needed to actually sail the two ships, presumably so that if a few were lost to illness or other issues, the ships could continue to function, and so that if necessary a few men could be left behind, to set up permanent trading posts in any newly discovered territory. The ships were given detailed instructions. Sail east to the Celebes Islands, then cut up north through the vast expanse of empty ocean until they reached Japan itself. Perhaps, in fact, the gold and silver islands were to the south of Japan, not to the east. Once they reached Japan, they were to chart the coast to the north and northwest, in order to figure out just how big the main island of Honshu was, and to figure out its relationship to, quote, the land called Jesso by the Japanese. In other words, Ezo, the old-timey name for Hokkaido. Their orders continue on for quite a bit, and more than anything, they really just show how unsure those drawing them up were about the geography of this whole region. They seem to imply that it was just as likely the ships would reach America somehow as they were to reach Japan, and went on at great length about finding the land of Cathay north of China, the drafters appear not to have realized that China and the land of Cathay described by Marco Polo were actually the same thing. The orders also tasked the crew with carefully logging their progress and doing their best to establish friendly trade relations with anyone and everyone they met, so that when they came home, the Dutch would have extensive maps and logs to plan new ventures with, and maybe even some potential trading partners. Unfortunately, as so often happens with these kind of things, the plan fell apart almost immediately. The ships got underway in early 1643, and in mid-May, the two ships ran into a storm just off Hachijojima, an outlying island of Japan about 180 miles, or 290 kilometers, to the south of what's now Tokyo. The Castricum was nearly wrecked on the island, which, considering that it was a place the Tokugawa shoguns liked to exile convicts to, would probably not have been a pleasant experience. It survived, 
but in the process the two ships were split off from each other. Now, these things happened during the Age of Sail, and there was a contingency in plan for it. The two ships had instructions, if they were separated, to make their way to Shioyasaki, a peninsula on the Pacific coast of Honshu, just about smack in the middle between Edo and Sendai, now a part of Iwaki City in Fukushima Prefecture. Castricum headed to the rendezvous site, and there waited for the Breskins, firing off the shipboard guns at prearranged intervals to try and signal the other ship. The Breskins, unfortunately, never showed. However, quite a few Japanese did. Almost immediately after arriving on the coast of Honshu and before the ship even made the Shioyasaki rendezvous point, it was approached by Japanese fishing vessels. The fishermen crewing these ships were able to communicate that they wanted to trade, which the crew of the Castricum was happy to do, exchanging some of their rice and booze for a healthy amount of fish. Within three days of this visit, more Japanese ships arrived, including one bearing a government official who apparently used hand gestures to communicate that it was forbidden for the Castricum to continue sailing north along the Honshu coast. Other ships came up to the Castricum later. The crew of these were more welcoming, encouraging the Castricum to dock in a port to the north that the crew recorded as being called Nabo, probably the city now known as Hachinohe in Aomori Prefecture, then one of the cities of Nanbu Domain, also sometimes called Morioka Domain. However, the crew of the Castricum had been briefed not to enter any Japanese port. They knew about the edict confining the Dutch to Nagasaki, way on the other end of Japan, and did not want to breach it for fear of harming the valuable Japan trade. Way back in 1609, Tokugawa Ieyasu had, theoretically, granted the Dutch permission to enter any port in the country, but his grandson Iemitsu, the current shogun, seemed to be tamping down on that permission and directing the Dutch to always go to Nagasaki, and the Castricum crew was under careful instructions not to annoy the Japanese on this or any other score. Instead, by mid-June, the leadership of the Castricum crew was forced to concede the Breskins was not going to make the rendezvous, and they continued north. By June 10th, they were somewhere to the east of Hokkaido, and from there they continued on, assuming that the Breskins had been tragically lost during the original storm, which had split the ships up. Except that the Breskins was not, in fact, lost. It had just been substantially delayed. On June 10th, the same day the Castricum recorded its position as to the east of Hokkaido, the Breskins was also off the coast of Japan, further south at Yamada Bay in modern Iwate Prefecture, about 350 kilometers, or 220 miles, north of the original rendezvous point in Iwaki. It's unclear what delayed them, or why they missed the original rendezvous. In the 1690s, the administrator for the Dutch East India Company, Nicolaes Witsen, used the Breskin's logbook, among many other sources, to write his own book on North and East Tartary, and then at some point after that, the original Breskin's logbook was lost. So we only have Witsen's indirect recounting of the Breskin's logbook to go off here. We do know that the only member of the Breskin's crew who had been to Japan before was its captain, Hendrik Shape. The rest of the crew was pretty much the exact same group of men who had sailed the brand new Breskins to Asia from the Netherlands in the first place. That relative lack of experience in the region will be important down the line. 
The Bay of Yamada, where the Breskins arrived on the 10th, is a fantastic natural harbor, surrounded by dramatic granite cliffs, and with a fresh stream providing ample water. One imagines that a group of sailors who had previously been at sea recovering from a pretty rough storm would be overjoyed to see it, particularly considering that the Castorcombe had the majority of the expedition's supplies, so the Breskin's crew had been getting by on, well, not much. The bay was also home to a couple of different fishing hamlets. The one closest to where the ship docked was called Oda. It did not take long for the locals to spot what their records called simply the big ship. Before long, Japanese fishing vessels were making their way towards the Breskins, and just had happened with the Castricum, a flourishing trade began. The Dutch crew were under instructions to be on their best behavior to avoid harming Dutch trading prospects, and they appear, astonishingly enough, to have actually followed those directions. The records from the Japanese villages whose residents visited the Breskins seem to suggest that not only was there a thriving trade, but a pretty substantial party when the ships arrived. The Dutch were free in sharing their liquor and in offering gifts to their Japanese hosts. The Japanese, for their part, were happy to share their food and gifts of their own with these visitors from abroad. The experience of both the Castricum and the Breskins make it clear that while the laws banning all but a select few foreigners were in effect by this point, those laws had yet to really sink in. For these villagers, the chance to meet these foreigners was far too exciting to pass up because of some silly edict from a far-off shogun. The very next day, the Breskins sailed away. For the next month and a half afterward, the only record we have of their activities come from Whitson's account. He describes the Breskins sailing north, finding Gesso and trading with some Ainu villages there, discovering a new island at 47 degrees 8 minutes north latitude, my guess would be Sakhalin Island, and then from there, the Breskins turned around and sailed back to Honshu, arriving in late July with a plan to restock and then head east into the open Pacific to continue the fruitless search for the Gold and Silver Islands. The description from Whitson glosses over some pretty important stuff, though, and to understand that, we have to take a break from recounting the story of the Breskins and turn instead to Japan itself for a bit. Specifically, we need to talk about the domain that controlled areas both the Castricum and the Breskins had visited. That region was variously called either Morioka Domain or, in reference to the ruling Nanbu clan, Nanbu Domain. The Nanbu clan was, at the time that this expedition arrived, ruled by its 28th family head, Nanbu Shiganao. The Nanbu clan had old roots, it could trace its lineage back to the same family line that the Minamoto clan of shoguns had. The family had done alright for itself under Tokugawa rule, thanks in large part to a decision by Shiganao's father, Toshinao, to immediately throw his support behind Tokugawa Ieyasu, at the start of the Sekigahara campaign. In thanks for this quick decision-making, the family had been allowed to keep a pretty substantial estate, around 130,000 koku, or bushels of rice, a pretty respectable sum. The Nanbu clan also enjoyed status as Fudai Daimyo, or trusted retainers of the shogun. However, the status of the Nanbu was also decisively middling, the domain's income was pretty close to average for a major lord, particularly compared to wealthy neighbors like the Date clan, 
whose 600,000 koku income made them one of the most powerful families in Japan. As the Breskins and Castricum were en route to Japan, Nanbushiganao had been in Edo for his required period of attendance on the Shogun, or Sankin Kotai. He received permission to head home in June of 1643 and arrived in Morioka in early July, at which point the officials who had managed the domain in his absence told him of the visits by the Castricum and the Breskins. We've talked obliquely before about the role of the Metsuke, government officials who also served as spies. The Tokugawa government had its Metsuke, individual domains did as well, and it's quite likely that at least a few of the Japanese who had turned up to greet the Dutch visitors were either Metsuke in disguise or informants. Either way, Nanbushiganao was informed in great detail about these mysterious visitors who had come to his lands from abroad. And this would have been quite alarming to Lord Shiganao. Literally a few days before leaving Edo, the shogun, Tokugawa Iemitsu, had called a special audience in his fortress in Chioda Castle to make two announcements. First, efforts to vigilantly defend the coast were to be redoubled as disturbing reports had already reached Edo of foreign ships off the eastern coast of Honshu, which were trading illegally with the locals. Second, a trusted Fudai daimyo, Kato Akinari, was being stripped of most of his holdings, from 200,000 koku down to a mere 10,000, for incompetence in management. We don't know for certain if Nanbu Shiganao was present in person for the audience where these announcements were made, but regardless, he would have heard about them, and doubtless he was too smart to miss the clear message being sent here about what happened to lords who could not enforce the shogun's laws to his satisfaction. So when he found out that his own domain had been visited by these outsiders, well, he knew something had to be done. Shiganao's lead advisor and the head of his metsuke was a Confucian scholar named Urushiro Masashige, who had met Shiganao in Edo when the lord was a child, and followed him to Morioka after Shiganao had inherited the domain. Urushido, a Confucian, despised Christianity as a threat to the traditional social order, and saw it as his duty to ensure that Morioka was in compliance with all the shogun's edicts. If these visitors from abroad were Europeans, perhaps they followed the Catholic faith, which the shogun had banned as an evil faith, and whose followers he was in the midst of persecuting. If so, it was imperative that Nanbu Domain crack down on this immediately to display its own willingness to obey the shogun's rules. So Urushido urged Shiganao to give him the task of going to Yamada Bay and impressing upon the inhabitants of the bay that these anti-foreign edicts were edicts, not suggestions. Shiganao quickly agreed, tasking Urushido and another senior retainer, Shichinohe Naotoki, with going to Yamada and setting an example for others who would defy the shogun's ruling. So the two made their way to Yamada in the company of several hundred samurai, and set up camp right in the middle of one of the villages in the bay, with their headquarters at the local Soto sect Zen temple, Ryu Shoji, which incidentally is still there, you can go to Yamada and visit it yourself. There, they set about gathering testimony from the locals about the big ship, 
inspecting the foreign goods the locals had acquired to ensure that none of it was Christian paraphernalia, which would have been another violation of the Shogun's laws, and just generally making it clear that this sort of consorting with the foreigners was not to be tolerated. To give you an idea of the intensity with which Shichinohe and Urushido approached this task, they had one man named Bunshichi carted off to Edo because the two characters that made up his name each kind of sort of looked like a cross if you really squinted at them, and therefore this guy must be a covert Christian. There is no record of what happened to Bunshichi. It was probably bad. Early on in the investigation, Shichinohe and Urushido made the decision to round up anyone who had interacted with the foreigners, anyone who had even looked at the ships, and send them off to Edo for further questioning. The goal was to root out Christian sympathizers as well as breakers of the Shogun's laws, and really, more importantly, to be seen by the Shogun and his advisors as taking this issue very seriously, allaying any suspicion that Nanbushiganao, any of his followers, and Morioka domain more generally, were soft on Christianity. As you might imagine, this set the region into a panic. Given the harshness of the declaration, again, anyone who had looked at the ships was to be rounded up, a huge chunk of the area's population was now living in fear of being carted off to Edo. We have records from the major shrines in the area, three of them, by the by, all of which were dedicated to former Oni, who had been pacified by offerings into local protective gods, so hey, nice tie-back to a past episode. We know the villagers were praying like crazy for some kind of divine intercession to save their communities from this fate. But what could really save them? Realistically, the only thing that would do the trick would be if the foreigners came back. This time, the inhabitants of Yamada Bay could receive them the correct way, which is to say with as much hostility as possible, and therefore prove their loyalty to the laws of the Shogun. But what were the odds of something like that happening? The arrival of the foreigners was a freak accident. Surely lightning was not going to strike twice. Now, back to the Breskins. One imagines that heading back south, Captain Shape was under a lot of pressure to return to Yamada Bay, regardless of whether he wanted to or not. After all, the search north had been fairly fruitless, and again the Castricum had taken most of the expedition's supplies, so you have to imagine the chance to restock the hold of the Breskins was a pretty attractive prospect. Besides, the locals had been friendly last time. The Breskins crew had followed their orders to be friendly back. There was no reason to suspect that anyone would be less than thrilled to see the Dutch back in town. And so it was that in August 1643, the Breskins came sailing back into Yamada Bay. Urushido, by all accounts, was thrilled. Not only had he been given the chance to catch Christian sympathizers and lawbreakers, now he had a chance to imprison some actual foreign barbarians with the temerity to defy the Shogun's edicts. Now that is a hell of a thing to put on your resume. So Urushido began an elaborate deception. He put on a welcoming face for the Dutch, going so far as to row out and visit their ship with gifts, and having a few drinks with Captain Shape, while inviting a few of the Dutch crew to please come visit Yamada Bay with me. While aboard the Breskins, Urushido made careful note of the conditions of the ship, noting among the other things he saw the bizarre hanging beds of the foreigners, hammocks in other words, 
and keeping careful track of all the weapons he saw aboard, even getting a chance to fire one of the Dutch pistols himself after he expressed curiosity about it. Under this pretense of friendliness, Urushido and later Shichinohe, who joined the group after some Dutchmen came ashore to talk, was able to convince the Dutch to move the Breskins closer to the coastline. The ship was anchored about 1,500 meters, just over nine-tenths of a mile from shore. That appears to have been a bit too far for Urushido, as he wanted to keep his new catch close by. The precise sequence of events that come next is a bit unclear. We have three major accounts of the action, all of which agree broadly on what happened but disagree on some details. First is Urushido's own report drafted as events were going on, but drafted with an eye towards making himself look good by omitting any precise details of his interactions with the Dutch for fear that it would make him look too friendly towards the foreigners. Second, we have a Dutch account written about six months after the fact, which means that more of it is written from potentially faulty long-term memories, and also written with an eye towards justifying the events that are about to happen. A third source, the Tokugawa Jiki, or Veritable Records of the Tokugawa Era, was written substantially after the fact and really shouldn't be trusted on any of the details. Then there are fragmentary local records, some of which allude to things not mentioned at all in any of these chronicles. For example, the family records of one prominent local clan, the Minato, describe a party held for the Dutch on the second night of their visit, with ten beautiful local girls having been rowed out on a boat to sing in order to entice the Dutch ashore. What happened when they came? We don't know. The Minato clan records stop abruptly as about ten lines of the account appear to have been literally cut out of the record and the text pasted back together. Broadly speaking, here's what we know. The Nanbu domain officials planned to lure the Dutch into a false sense of security. The Dutch, with supplies running short, were happy to be lured. This all came to a head on one drizzly day three days into the stay of the Breskins in the harbor, when Urushido came aboard to breakfast with the Dutch, and then invited them ashore to get the supplies they needed, especially fresh vegetables to stave off the vitamin deficiencies that plagued men at sea. The Dutch report shows their happy acceptance of the idea. Quote, After having eaten, we went ashore with the nobleman, Urushido, and in our small boat, to see whether we could get some fresh vegetables for our crew, taking some Guinean linen and other fabrics of little value. We ordered our first mate and the other officers to take good care and keep an eye on us. Strictly speaking, going ashore as a group like this was skirting the edge of the regulations for the crew, particularly as the Japanese insisted the Dutch didn't need weapons. One of them even politely offered to carry the captain's cutlass for him, because it was, after all, very heavy, and it would be a shame for the captain to be tired. The crew's instructions were clear, going ashore with no weapons was not a good idea anywhere. But the Japanese had been friendly so far, clearly there's nothing to worry about here. In all, ten Dutch sailors went ashore. The only one whose name you need to know is the captain, Henrik Shape. But here are the rest, and by the way, I apologize in advance for this, I do not pronounce Dutch very well. First, we have the quartermaster, Wilhelm Bijvelt, as well as a cabin boy named Jacob de Paw of 14. There was also the ship's cooper, Peter Gerritz, the botswain's mate, Hans Slee, 
an artillerist named Urien Schulten, three common sailors, Abraham Spelt, Seiwert Buysman, and Henrik van Elsfort, and then finally a cabin boy named Eert Bastins. I am, again, sure I butchered that, so I do apologize. The group was brought ashore on the pretense that they would be taken to a nearby market to trade for what they needed, and possibly also to have a good time, because really they'd been having a lot of fun so far. But Urshido had something different in mind. From his record, quote, We went ashore to my place. I thought that if I tied them up in the vicinity of the big ship, the Breskins, it might leave or even start shooting its guns. So we went together along the coastal road to a place called Orikasa at a distance between 15 and 20 cho from Yamada, about one and a half to two kilometers, or either just under or just over one mile. Urushido's record notes that he first took the group to see Shichinohe Naotoki, Urushido's companion in dealing with the Dutch. After leaving Naotoki, who went off on his own for purposes that will become clear in a bit, the group made their way down the coast road for about 30 minutes before stopping in a nearby farmhouse. This was apparently the moment the Dutch first started to get suspicious about what was happening. After all, they were supposed to be going to market, not sitting in a barn. After just over an hour, Captain Shape made to start going back to the bay. When Urushido attempted to placate him by saying supplies were on their way and that he'd even arranged for some horses so they wouldn't have to walk, Shape was apparently convinced that he was overthinking things. The horses actually did come, but when they did and the Dutch mounted up, they were surprised to find themselves surrounded on every side by five or six Japanese, who Urushido claimed were just there to make sure none of their precious Dutch guests fell off their horses. Eventually this proved too much for Shape, particularly once he saw the man who had taken his cutlass riding towards them. That man was supposed to be waiting in the bay for the group's return. The Dutch account says, quote, So we quickly dismounted as we wanted to go back the same way we had come, but looking back we saw the road and hillside so full of Japanese, as if the place were sprouting them and a whole army had, in that short a time, gathered there for the sole purpose of catching us. We then suddenly understood that we had been betrayed and caught. Some of us started to run toward the sea, trying to escape in Japanese boats, but each was pursued by at least 20 men who quickly brought them back. We were still considering breaking through the crowd along the way back, as the Japanese hesitated greatly at first to lay hands on us, even though we had no guns. But when their leaders had them surround us, we were each seized by at least 12 men, most with unsheathed swords in their hands, lifted up between them, and thrown roughly on the ground. First, if you're wondering about the swords, my guess would be that there was a mixture of samurai among this group, and possibly also there were some knives that fear had magnified. That hesitancy to lay hands on the crew is interesting. The ones grabbing them were not samurai, but peasants, presumably out of fear on Urushido's part that an angry samurai might kill a Dutch sailor who tried to fight back. The peasants, though, had a weird relationship with these Dutch sailors. We have not talked about this up until this point, but Yamada was still a pretty rural area at this point, and its peasants were still pretty superstitious, especially about the sea, which makes sense, as even those who didn't make their living on boats, well, they still experienced the danger of the tsunami or the storm coming in from the sea. 
So ships at sea were therefore considered to be somewhat mystical in their properties, a foreign type of ship never seen in the region even more so. Plus, this was a ship that had returned after the villagers had prayed for it, so clearly these sailors had some kind of connection to the gods. And yet, the peasants could not choose to ignore the commands of the samurai or they would be killed, so it was better to risk the abstract vengeance of the gods than the very real vengeance of the man with swords, but still, best not to push it too far and rough these guys up. So Shape and his crew were trussed in rope, with nooses around their necks and their hands tied behind their backs, in order to functionally immobilize them. The group then had their faces washed, and then Urushido asked them whether they would like to appear before the Shogun in Edo and pay their respects. Shape answered defiantly that they would, for, quote, we were Hollanders and trusted that we would be freed by the Shogun when he understands the reason for our coming here, as our captain, who rests in Nagasaki for the affairs of the company, pays his respects and presence to his majesty in Edo every year, unquote. Which was strictly true, but Toto, I don't think we're in Nagasaki anymore. The Dutch account also mentions that Shape took the opportunity to remind his captured crew, A, not to mention anything related to Christianity to their captors, even though they weren't Catholic, and B, to protect the interests of the company, as well as C, be patient and pray to God for release. The impression one gets is that Shape was able to remain calm in the face of danger, but of course this is a report composed six months later that we're working with here. Personally, call me cynical, but I'm far more inclined to think that Shape and the others were stone-cold terrified and panicking over how they were going to survive this. After all, the Japanese had executed Westerners before for defying the seclusion edicts. The prisoners were carted off to their uncertain fate, which we will cover next week. They left behind the Breskins and a deeply confused community around Yamada. Had they angered the gods by their actions? The fact that relics from the Breskins are supposedly still preserved in some of the shrines of Yamada suggests that this concern was a serious one. After all, better safe than sorry. But what of these ten captured crewmen? We'll explore their fate next week. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, go to the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part two.